Hi, this is Tim Rood. Welcome to the latest segment of On the Hill. So my guest today is a good friend, industry legend, I would say, is Wes Isley from Carrington Holding Company. Wes, thanks so much for coming. Thank you, Tim. All right, so Wes, I'm going to do a quick bio on you. Obviously, it'll be incomplete since you and I have been around for a minute. But you were recently, well, currently you're the EVP and Senior Managing Director of Carrington. I missed this, but I, I heard it was a fantastic event, which was you were recently honored for your four decades in the uh, mortgage finance space with the Five Star Institute Lifetime Achievement Award. So congratulations on that, of course. It looks like you joined Carrington around 2008. I'm pretty sure that's when we met, was right around that time. And uh, of course, that was during the subprime market meltdown. You were, as I guess, EVP of mortgage services at Carrington. Before that, I guess you were at Saxon Mortgage. Is that right? I think it was Saxon, wasn't it? No, part of Morgan Stanley. Yes. I love Saxon, by the way. We, we can talk about that offline. I still remember my underwriter from back in the 90s. I think it was the underwriting manager, Chris Brooks. He was fantastic. That was a great organization back in the day. Uh, before that, you were at um, residential real estate with Fremont General. I think you spent a couple of years there over origination, servicing, general operational support. And I understood you're from Kentucky and actually graduated from the University of Kentucky with a BA in finance. And you started with Associates Financial. God bless, Wes, we're old. I still remember Associates vividly. And you also, of course, spend a good deal of time working intimately with the various associations like the NBA and the National Mortgage Servicing Association. So with that, welcome, Wes. Thanks, Tim. So I was kidding with Stan Middleman the other, I guess a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, just basically joking about, you know, all the curious ways that we found ourselves in the mortgage business. You know, rarely do you hear the story that's like, well, you know, I got my start at first. I was a, I was a cl clerk for a Supreme Court justice. And, um, you know, then I went on and I was a Hill staffer for X number of years. Most of the stories in the mortgage sense start with something like, oh, my God, I got rear-ended by this guy in a Mercedes. And, you know, we got talking. And the next thing I know, boom. So, Tell me a little bit, Wes. What's what's your story? Where are you from? And let me know how you got into this industry. Well, it's kind of interesting. So I grew up in Kentucky, as you said. Uh, went to the University of Kentucky. Graduated with a finance degree and had great visions of probably working in New York or whatever. But that was 1981. 1981, as you remember, when prime rate was 21%, the financial industry was in disarray. So... Looked at banks, opportunities in banks, but came across Associates First Capital, interviewed, and I started in, you know what, they, you get the bug. And at Associates, if you worked hard and did well, you can move, move up. So I just embraced that and woke up 19 and a half years later. I was running half the country for them, centralized and uh, decentralized operations. And it was a great opportunity because at at Associates, you, you, to move up, you had to learn how to manage and communicate. You saw everything that you could even imagine. So later on in life, when something happened, it, it didn't surprise you. So it, it gave me my kind of founding of what leadership was 
And there were some great people. And there are some great people we still stay in contact with that came from, from that background. But, you know, I kind of gave you my fundamentals and how I look at that leadership. So it's funny, you, um, I was thinking about this this morning. So I, I've worked with, obviously, uh, autocratic leaders, collaborative leaders. Heck, I was talking to Bob Brokesmith a couple of podcasts ago, and people described him as a, as a servant leader, which is a, a, a noble endeavor, to say the least. Your team has described you and your style more as a, as a honey badger. Now, how would you describe the honey badger approach to leadership? Well, I take that as a um, a good trait. So I think you need to be tenacious and focused and stay on track. You know, every, everybody gets kind of upset about the small things. The small things will go away, but you, everybody needs to stay focused on, on the mission, what you're trying to accomplish. And I think if you keep people focused and communicate that vision, you know, and you might be a little tenacious about it, but that's how you get ahead. And I think people respond to, you know, leadership that that keeps them focused. So, yeah, that's that's how I kind of look at it. Yeah, I mean, your people would describe you as as fiercely loyal, always looking out for them, really not uh, undaunted in terms of going forward for whatever. It is that is needed to be done, and I'm not saying this to blow smoke. I mean, I would be blown away and, and obviously thrilled if my people thought about me in the same context. So obviously, it's a you know it's a profile in in courage and leadership. So good for you. Yeah, I think I think the whole thing comes with trust. The, that your trust in your people, their trust in in you, you know, internally and externally, you know, because like just like you. And myself, I mean, we have a large network outside of there, and we're able to help people outside of our company, you know, find jobs, do this, do that. And that—that that is one of the core things that I kind of look at is ha- having trust in people and having them trust in me. Yeah, it's easier said than uh, achieved or accomplished. So, congrats there. You know, it makes me think, Wes. The um, you know, since we've all maybe I keep saying this. Unfortunately, but again, since we've been through a few of these cycles, as I look out to the landscape and talk to people, I mean, the agita is is, is palpable and warranted from um, a lot of uh, well, everybody in the industry, but especially folks who've been in it for you know ten or twenty years haven't really seen the sort of cycles that we saw in the in the eighties and the early nineties and then the late nineties. I mean, I was thinking of a story the other day from nineteen ninety four where that was probably the only time in our history where rates jumped to the level and at the pace that they have recently. And obviously it was a washout in the mortgage industry and then real estate stalled. And, you know, you find yourself constantly trying to motivate yourself to reinvent yourself, to, to have the perseverance to make it through to the other side, knowing that, you know, success is around the corner. You just got to make it through today. As you look at this, what kind of advice are you getting folks? Or better yet, Wes, what would be an example? And I'll match you if you give me a good one. What, what's a good example as you look back through the different cycles where you found yourself in a really down market and you really had to not only pick yourself up by your bootstrap, but also 
convey a message of hope and hopefully prosperity in the future for your team? Well, early days in Carrington was, you know, we had a portfolio that Bruce did, Bruce Rose, our, our owner. It was about, you needed to protect the customer. You needed to keep that cash flow going. And it was all about communication with that customer. But it was all about the cash flow. We were doing modifications before mods were popular. And the AAA bondholders, all they wanted to do was foreclose and get their money back where it was better for the customer and the industry to keep those things cash flowing. So then when HAMP came out, all of a sudden mods were good. But, you know, I think you need to be innovative. You always got to listen to your customers and your, and your people and look for those opportunities. But we made it through. It made it made Carrington a strong company. And, and we got very good at special servicing and, and general servicing. And it's still one of our core, you know, is it servicing, working with customers, working out solutions for them is still key to us. You know, it's interesting. I thought about this. A lot of the down cycles in the past were at least paved over, patched up for, I guess, bridge from A to B was done through product development. So like you talk about, we talk about Fremont, we talk about American General, we talk about Saxon, all these ones for back in the day where, you know, as interest rates spiked, companies would come up with, you know, there were some subprime products, there were Alt-A products, uh, non-owner occupied, no income, no docs. All of these different things that you know basically took when you exhausted organic demand, created demand again through product development. Once the the federal government had the effect of through the qualified mortgage rule had the effect of essentially legislating the sort of credit risks that um, lenders could take. It's an oversimplification, but I think that was the general sense and ultimately what chilled the market. Given that we don't have those products anymore, what do you think the the strategy is for originators now? Um, are they still, are you guys still looking at product development as green fields and the opportunities at Carrington to get you from A to B? Or because of the things like the QM rule and whatnot, you're basically largely saddled with the, the commoditized products or homogenous products that exist in the marketplace through say, the GSEs and uh, Ginny May? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, Doc. I think w- the way we look at it, we, you know, we understand credit-sensitive assets. So, I mean, our niche is lower FICO govy loans, done well, educate the borrower. We've been doing it a lot of years, and we're very good at that. So I think we stay in that niche, and from the manual underwriting, it, our quality is is very good. But the other part is non-QM. And I think non-QM is an important space. So, I mean, creativity with good underwriting, and there is. I mean, looking at the the results of non-QM so far, I mean, I think that everybody is doing prudent underwriting. And we we kind of pride ourselves at Carrington of understanding non-QM and those credit-sensitive assets. And that's how we look at it. Thanks for that, Wes. So, I mean, as you look at now the current market, you can pick both or one or the other. 
residential mortgage, the real estate markets. How are you describing these things to, to your teammates and how are you looking at the current environment and then maybe where you see it going out 12 to 18 months down the road? Okay, so I'll, I'll give it the the West view versus the Carrington view, but I, I think it's very similar that I think the first thing, as I said, credit quality is, is as highest as I've ever seen. So that's good. Equity is going to soften anything that's going to come up. The equity run up is good for all the consumers out there. So that's going to soften anything as we enter the recession when it hits, you know, how severe that is going to be. What's unemployment? Where is that going to hit? It's going to say something about delinquencies. It's going to be softened by the amount of equity out there. I don't think that you're not seeing the wave of foreclosures that everybody predicted two years ago, a year and a half ago. And that's because of the amount of equity. Now, the 2022 vintage might be a little bit more challenging, but I think we're going to have a little bit softer landing than some people are predicting. It is interesting. I think we talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago when we met with the group, the NMSA group. And I applaud what I think are probably some of the most creative policy solutions that I've seen from lawmakers and policymakers in the mortgage space, COVID to now. So I've been really impressed by the collaboration and how creative the agencies have been in terms of crafting some of these solutions. Where I start to get anxious is a lot of the a number of policies that were put in place during the the exigent circumstances of COVID, and which was kind of a probably hopefully a once in a lifetime sort of event that required policies that would foam the runways for servicers, so to speak, so that they could efficiently manage the scale of inbound requests that were coming say march of 2020 and then beyond for assistance so that said what i'm looking at now is it's unclear where the next crisis would come from i mean i mean obviously there's the risk of a recession soft landing what have you but it's not perfectly clear ultimately what's going to bring down the housing market when you think about the limited inventory the high demand and even the high interest rates seem to be not really impacting the demand for at least sufficient enough borrowers to for slow down appreciation. It's slowed down, but it hasn't started shrinking in that sense. But so as you look at the policies that are out there, do you get any sort of concern that maybe there is an underappreciation, kind of like the last crisis, the financial crisis? There might be an underappreciation for the risks of widespread defaults in the future. I'll leave it at that for now. What are your thoughts, Wes? Well, I think you look back at 2008 of where the state of the servicing industry was then, and you, you look at it now, and it's two different worlds. You look at, you brought up March 20, 2020 when everything hit. Okay, so servicers had to move from a centralized call center to a decentralized and move everybody to work from home within a 30-day period. And in the industry itself, pulled that off. And the one thing good about 
servicers or National Mortgage Servicing Association, the NBA, is we all kind of work together. I mean, there was meetings of what's working to for borrower reach out by having portals, education, this and that. We're all sharing information to try to come up with a solution. And servicers, I think, compared more compared than originators, and you know this, Tim, because you've seen us all together, is, hey, we're working together for a solution. I mean, if you look at supplemental payment, which is out kind of being discussed right now, the NBA is involved, the National Mortgage Servicing Association's involved. We're working to make it make it work for a solution, to make it work for the customers, for implementation, and working through the whole process. And everybody is participating because we, we do have a vested interest. We want it done right. We want something that works for the agencies and for the customer and for the servicer. So I think we're any better because the servicers are more collaborative and working on solutions. And the supplement is one thing that's going on right now, which we're all trying to figure out. Yeah, it's curious. One of the things that we had talked to um, some folks in the uh, administration were, well, maybe you could take that that sort of partial claim, supplemental partial claim, and under circumstances where you know a borrower is unsuccessful completing their modification, that also included a supplemental partial claim. Maybe there's even a way to take that supplemental partial claim and make it part of a package to investors for selling a property via short sale or the, you know, what's it called from PFS, the partial, oh gosh, I forgot that. Anyway, the FHA program for PFS. Um, what the heck is it called? Like, what does it stand for, Wes? Solve the mystery. Pre-foreclosure sale. Tell them what he's won, Bob. Okay, PFS. So short sale and pre-foreclosure sales. Maybe you can advertise the, the property with a supplemental partial claim account, like this custodian account that actually could go to, say, supplementing the rent payments for a period of time and encouraging a higher price, if you will, to um, help this distressed household with more proceeds, supplemental proceeds from the sale to help them out in addition to the supplemental uh, partial claim. My point of bringing all that up, Wes, is that are there things that you'd like to see policymakers do from here that either mitigate the risks of some of the things that are done or grease the skids for things that need to be done in the future? Well, I think the one big concern, it, it doesn't really impact Carrington as, as much as other services the way we're structured, but you know, liquidity for Jenny May non-bank servicers, there needs to be a solution. I mean, last time when forbearance hit, we thought there was going to be this a good solution from Minutian on up, which never happened, but then prepayments went up and solved everything and everybody was making so much money in originations, they said, hey, these non-banks can figure it out themselves. So I think that, uh, you know, liquidity for, for non-banks and then Ginny May space is, is, you know, a solution is needed. PTAP is not a solution. It was great that they came up with it so quick. Uh, there was a small amount that took advantage of it, but I, I think there needs to be a more permanent solution. I agree. I mean, I get a little anxious at some of the policies that, that again, are 
enlightened. I don't say that casually. I, I think they're very thoughtful, magnanimous. They take into consideration the reality of the current market conditions. But again, my my refrain on these things is that I don't know that we're learning from the, I guess, the episodes of the past that we miscalculated pretty immensely. And when you start looking at um, the policies that are being implemented now, some of them just start to give me a little bit of, uh, you know, the hair on the back of my neck standing up because it sounds like we're talking about policies that worked in the past for a little while and then didn't work. And we put new labels on them from the perspective of, oh, my God, those are idiosyncratic. Well, that's that sounds like we used to say contained. And no docs or ninja loans and things like that, which were scoffed at and, uh, you know, were obviously labeled as part of the cause of the last crisis now seem to be readily adopted out of, you know, a civilized approach, an expedient approach towards processing loan modifications or determining eligibility for consideration from one of the government agencies for payment subsidies, payment suspensions, all of those different things. Do you do you ever get concerned that we seem to be convincing ourselves to do things in the past that were reserved for emergency circumstances and then making them mainstream now? Well, I think the big forbearance, I mean, forbearance helped out a lot of people. And I think that was, there weren't a lot of choices at that time. I just don't see us hitting that forbearance button every time something comes up. I think there needs to be more solutions, better improvement to the to the waterfall on, on that. And I, I think that, you know, streamlining some of the government servicing operations more closely to the GSEs. I, I, and there's been work being done and we're getting closer, but there's still a lot of work to be done. So it's it streams life. It makes it, it makes it better for the customer and 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 the service all all around. I definitely get it in the short term. My my fear is that if you make it too casual for folks to say get a forbearance, you know, just through attestations without really documenting it or going through that sort of a process that people might take on some sort of a, assume some moral hazard in that, in that, well, there's really, I know it's serious, but it doesn't seem that serious taking out a mortgage if I need to miss a payment because, I don't know, I'm making it up, right? So I, I want to go to New Zealand for the summer and I don't feel like stressing over my mortgage. So I'll just dog ear that, put in a request for forbearance, and then it becomes kind of like a cash management tool. The challenge, of course, is if you give a little bit and then a little bit more, or people get accustomed to being able to pause that, then you run the risk that um, getting them back into the pattern routine of making any sort of mortgage payment, kind of like we're about to find out on the student loan side and kind of how we learned during the financial crisis is that when you when someone gets accustomed to paying zero and you show up and even with a sweetheart deal and reducing their payments substantially is still a heck of a lot more than zero. So what are your thoughts about that? Okay, let's go back to the forbearance. So the issuer still has to pay the bondholder. So during that that whole time, you know, that the non-banks made it through. It's probably the biggest test on servicing strength to date in my 40 years. And we all 
I think that everybody had had a plan to structure their cash, but it took a lot of ingenuity and and uh, to make that through. But every time they hit that forbearance button for those eighteen months, we paid the bondholder. And I think that we need to solve for that in the future. And back to the liquidity thing for government non-bank, you know, servicers. That if if you're going to hit that button again. I think we need to come up with that solution. So I'm about, I'm going to say the same thing again in a different way. So it's funny you mentioned that. Gosh, I was at the, an event on the Hill a couple of months ago, and I raised that sort of topic, which is, you know, through the CARES Act, obviously, which was a legis- the primary regis- legislation that was passed and the first piece of legislation that was passed during COVID, um, had in there, obviously, there were public policies, laws that were put in place that were essentially financed, if not entirely paid for in some circumstances by the private sector, right? So mortgage servicers, landlords, so on and so forth. So I asked this lawmaker, I said, hey, that CARES Act put a big burden ultimately on the private sector. Heck, they actually financed it. How do you think about future legislation that also has the private sector financing or paying for it as opposed to appropriating it through the proper channels and uh, through Congress or whatnot, they mentioned, they said, boy, I sure hope so. Meaning I sure hope there's more private sector financing for these public policy solutions. What's your reaction to that? Oh, it's, it, it's the same thing. I, I think it's an undue burden, you know, placed on us that, that shouldn't be. So that's the big solution that, that if you, if you want long range stability for the future, I think you need to solve for that instead of just saying, let them figure it out, right? Which is is what happened last time. Yeah. And that's the hard work of legislating, right? Right. (laughs) So, so any case, but with all that behind us and thanks for the details, you know, I've known you for a long time. I can't imagine you're going to be doing this forever. So let me ask you, I mean, you've got all kinds of hobbies. I see you on Facebook. And quite frankly, I find myself apologizing to my wife for not doing more things or being more active or showering her with gifts. So thanks for that, Wes. But what do you see as, as next for you? What would you be doing if you weren't working at Carrington or working in the industry? Well, you know, it's kind of hard. I mean, after all these years, I mean, there's good friendships still tight for from the associates days, the Fremont days. You know, the Morgan Stanley days and especially the Carrington family that we, we have now. But hey, I, I think, you know, I love to travel. My wife and I have been fortunate. The, the one good thing of which I didn't see and I thought was this somewhat virtual. It's getting back to a little bit more normal, but being able to live in different places and travel as long as you're connected. I think right now, People are more connected than they have been. I mean, from six to whenever, and and you're checking in seven days a week. I I think that from there's been some improvements in the industry and and across all the industries, really, from just having to adopt to what we went through. So it's it's good dance staying connected, just like we are right now on Zoom. So it's better in person. And it's getting getting closer to be that, but there's some good things that came out of it. 
I agree in the sense that, um, you know, I don't see myself retiring anytime soon. Idle time and me are inconsistent and generally lead to bad outcomes. So I, if I don't keep myself occupied, I'll find all kinds of mischief littered all around me. And by being able to be remote and not feeling like you're disconnected, but actually being connected and wired into all the conversations and relationships that you would have had in person and through burning a lot of jet fuel kind of empowers you in the sense that, man, there's a million darn things I could be doing from here, from there, well into the future, which, again, is exciting. It is. It is. Um, Wes, anything you want to cover? Anything that I missed that's top of mind for you? No, I think we we kind of went through the industry, probably more focused on servicing on that. Um, but, hey, it, it, things are going to come around. You know, it, it, and I've seen these cycles before. The people that are going to are making it through now will be stronger when it comes out and it will turn. So, you know, be patient and, you know, get ready for the next cycle. Amen. Well, I'll leave on a, on a high note. So it's something kind of hopefully amusing. I, I was thinking and I wanted to ask you about, again, since we I've got 30 years in, you've got nearly 40 years in, not to date us any further. But no shortage of um, amusing anecdotes and situations that we found ourselves in. So I wanted you to think about over the years, one or two of those uh, that are most memorable to you that also could be obviously entertaining and instructive to listeners. And I'll start so that you get a, a minute to, to kind of process all of the crazy things that you've been through. So in, in 1993, which was really the one of the really crazy first legitimate refi booms. I think it was like a trillion eight market or something like that. I got out of college in the early 90s and was a loan officer. Anyway, the guy who owned our mortgage company, I don't know, he had like three wives or something, ex-wives. So he was padding the rates unconscionably. So we were terribly uncompetitive. But anytime we closed a loan, the guy made like four points and kicked us off like 25 basis points or something. So I go into my... Um, the guy who hired me one day and I'm like, oh my God. I was like, Richard, I, I'm dying on the phones out here. I know our, our rates are terrible. I said, how, how do you lose a, a client on the phone? And he goes, without hesitation, he goes, I don't. And I go, huh, take me through, I don't. He's like, okay, write this down. I'm like, okay, what? He goes, lie to them. Just get, get them into the office to sign a mortgage application and then float them and it'll all work out fine. And I remember sitting there, I'm like, I don't, I don't I think that's illegal, but it feels borderline unethical. So that was the, the place that I cut my teeth on that I still scratched my head on all of the, oh my God, dubious advice and characters around that place back in the early 90s. So with that planted, anything jumped to mind in terms of funny stories that people could relate to or would find at least amusing? Well, you know what? I'll go back to the associates days. And I think at the very end, I had, what, seven, 800 branches reporting up to me. And at the end of the month, there was always something going on. So we actually had a team. We called them associates, the smoke jumper team. In fact, I'm going to see one of them in a couple of weeks up. And she lives in St. Louis Obispo. But at that point, we would actually take a team and, and fly them in to handle any situation that we have. 
to help manage through the situation. And, and but they had fun. They they actually had shirts that said "Associate Smoke Jumper" on there, and they were very proud to be part of this team. But I don't know. I just look back at that, and we had a lot of fun with that. And you know, we're we're still close. Not as funny as yours, Tim, but you're you're funnier than I am. No, it just means I've had yeah more traumatic experiences probably. Uh, but I appreciate that, Wes. As always, it's a treat to catch up. I appreciate you taking the time. Be safe and have fun in uh, in Mexico, and we'll see you hopefully uh, stateside soon. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Citus AMC's On the Hill. To learn more about Citus AMC, our company, our latest thinking, visit us at citusamc.com or find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter.